Welcome to Drugs Unwrapped, the podcast brought to you by Barrod. Barrod is a substance use service based across West, South and East Wales. Each episode, we'll be asking one question about drugs and their use and debating it from the perspectives of those at the front line, providing support and services to those affected by substances. In this episode, we chat to Petra Schultz, who is based in Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. Petra tragically lost her son, Danny, at the age of 25 in 2014 due to a fentanyl overdose. Since then, Petra has co-founded a national organization named Mums Stop the Harm and has become a harm reduction advocate and has tirelessly campaigned for drug policy reform across Canada. We hope you enjoy. So hi, Petra. How are you? You okay? I'm good. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Um, I've been in beautiful Wales once many, many years ago, but have fond, fond memories. So thanks for connecting. Yeah, that's right. No, thank you very much for for, uh, for accepting to be on the, the podcast. So it was Abergavenny you were in Wales quite a yeah, few years ago. Yeah, I went for a workshop in, in Abergavenny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Excellent. So how is it? So you're over in Edmonton in Alberta. So how's yeah. the weather? Because I always imagine Alberta, especially coming into the winter, absolutely freezing. Is it kind of getting to that point now? Or Surprisingly, we haven't had a killing frost yet. It's unusual. Um, we've had a beautiful autumn so far and we are enjoying every moment of it because the snow will come. But I love cross-country skiing and, and uh, we have a beautiful river valley and that's that's kind of my mental health too. Getting out, getting onto my skis um, yeah. helps me cope with difficult times. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. So you lived in, so how long have you lived in Canada for then and where were you originally from? I'm originally from Germany, as you might be able to tell by the <laughs> accent. Um, I grew up near Frankfurt um, and uh, I moved to um, Edmonton, Alberta in, in 85. And we've lived here with a few interruptions. We actually lived in London, England for a couple of years when my husband did okay. his postdoc. We lived in the London borough of Bromley and I worked in Hammersmith and Fulham. I don't, I don't work anymore. My, my professional background is um, in the disability studies world, which okay. um, came in really handy when it came to do drug policy advocacy, because um, if you support people with disabilities, advocacy is, is a big part of it. Um, and uh, we have our oldest um, um, is autistic. So, so disability okay. advocacy is second nature to me. And I used to teach at a, at a local university here, but um, I've, um, I've given that up a couple of years ago, ago just because the advocacy work is very demanding. To get stuck in, really, obviously, with you being based in mm -hmm. in, in, in Canada, um, and, and obviously you've already alluded to in terms of like your work around drug policy reform, mm -hmm. I think most people obviously be aware of North America's opioid crisis. Are you able to like just give what you believe to be like the origins and and the background really to the opioid crisis in Canada? What we actually call it is a drug poisoning crisis. We don't um, see it as an opioid crisis because people aren't dying from opioids in, in general. They're dying from substances that are on the toxic street supply. 
So um, it's a, it's a crisis of a, of a poisoned of a toxic supply, not a crisis of addiction, not a not an opioid crisis. So it's an it's an important distinction um, to make in in my opinion. And how did we arrive at it? I mean, there there are many factors how we arrived at it. Uh, the war on drugs is is a huge element. Um, the the crackdown uh, that uh, continues to happen and has produce nothing other than lots of expenditures, lots of people in jail, and, and sadly, lots of lives lost. Um, we did have a period of, um, it's often referred to as overprescribing, but I like to call it wrongful prescribing, um, where um, we gave um, too much of the medication to yeah, to the wrong people. Um, like for example, there were cases of teens who had wisdom teeth taken out and walked home with an opioid paid medication or um, a student of my husband's, she had exam stress and had a really, really sore neck and back and she came back and had an opioid prescription. Uh, that, that should not happen. Or people post-surgery, you know, where you maybe need 10 pills to manage you post-surgery for your pain, but the doctor will give you 30 just in case you need more, and then 20 end up in the cupboard, and from the cupboard, they might find their way onto the street. So certainly, there was um, an uh, abundance of um, a prescription medication redirected to the street. And this is how our son Danny started his journey. He he was struggling with um, with social anxiety um, and um, uh, with depression, and he started to self medicate. And he tried different substances. And um, later, when we learned about his struggles with substance use, I asked him, Danny, why do you take these drugs? And he said, and I take one of those pills. I can walk into any room and be who I am. So he was. He was self-medicating. He used for about two or three years um, uh, diverted prescriptions, and we didn't even know he was using. Um, he was able to keep it from us. Uh, problems didn't start to emerge until um, in 2012, OxyContin was reformulated um, in North America to OxyNeo, making it tamper-proof. So you couldn't crush it anymore. You couldn't um, couldn't snort it, couldn't inject it and such. And then a lot of people switched to street heroin, which was in poor supply at the time. Um, and um, there were also heavy crackdowns, and uh, that's how um, synthetic opioids emerged. They're cheaper to make, they're easier to smuggle, they met the demand um, that, that was present at the time, and uh, they really propelled us into the crisis that we have now. So it's really prohibition that brought us. The, the death toll that we have now, prohibition. Because when overprescribing or wrongful prescribing was happening, um, people develop problems. I don't, I don't want to minimize it. It, it mm -hmm. is a problem in itself, but people weren't dying in the numbers in which we have now. Like in, in British Columbia, uh, we saw for years and years death for around um, 250, uh, 300 people a year, which is terrible. But now um, in British Columbia, you have six or seven people die every day. And um, it's just uh, so devastating. In our province of Alberta, um, we have just a little more than 4 million um, inhabitants here. Um, five people die every day. 
and um, to me, as um, we we lost our youngest Danny in two thousand fourteen, um, and to me, having so many die is just like you have that that injury and that pain over and over and over again with every new family that joins our ranks. When when you talk about like the the over prescribing or the, the wrongful mm. prescribing. What was that oxycontin, or was it uh, as, or was it oxycontin as well as many other kind of opioid-based medications? It was uh, mostly oxycontin because it was so heavily marketed. It was initially marketed, ironically, as a non-addictive, long-acting um, opioid pain medication. Which uh, my husband is a pharmacologist, and and he says there there is no opioid that you don't develop a physical dependence to. Uh, so that that was really wrongful marketing, and and Purdue Pharma is the, the, the maker of OxyContin is now battled in a lot of legal action. So so that was a, a huge issue at at the time. So but there were other make medications as well, like Percocets and and such. Um, but mostly OxyContin that was the one that was most heavily pushed. When when I was like talking to the other person I know who's based in Toronto and, and she was saying like in terms of like when OxyContin came onto the market, it was seen as like a wonder drug. Was was mm-hmm. was that your kind of like perception at that time in terms of like obviously you may not have been aware of it when it first kind of came on, but was that oh, kind of what were you seen I, as then? I I learned I learned about that later. Uh, talking, um, I give a talk every year, uh, or several talks at at the university where I used to work. I talk to the nursing students there, the mental health nursing class, and a nursing instructor told me when she was working in long term care, the the Purdue Pharma rep would come around and see, oh, um, if you have seniors who struggle with dementia, um and get disoriented, you know, off-label use of OxyContin works really well to settle them down. And I can imagine that, uh, yeah, it would it would help settle people down, but uh, that just shows the size of the issue and the, yeah, the magnitude of the, of the misinformation. It was heavily, heavily pushed. And Danny said it was easy to buy, it was cheap, 20 bucks a pill you could buy it at the high school locker at his local high school but we've gone from that you know the crackdown we have now um like the medical profession has a bit of a hankering to throw out the baby with the bathwater. um it we should not be wrongfully prescribing but then there are people who need pain meds to function like if you had an injury, we're in a traffic accident, a workplace injury. Here in Alberta, we have a resource industry, an oil industry, where without a high school education, you can make a six-figure income. And then when you get an injury, um, you want to get back to work and make that money. So, um, you know, people took a lot of pain meds because of that. But there are people who need the pain meds long-term to function. And these people are getting cut off and because doctors get pressures from their colleges. Now over prescribing is such a um, see, yeah, it's such a buzzword around, and there's so much fear from the medical profession that we push even pain patients into the um, illegal street drug market. And yeah. that should just not happen. What what was the reason do you believe to be like for the the amount of over prescribing then? I think 
uh, I think um, physicians were misinformed. Um, okay. There were marketing campaigns going in like pain, uh, uh, the fifth sense, and, uh, you know, that they really felt like a, a duty to mitigate pain, uh, pain in their patients. And the company promoted it so heavily um, and marketed it so heavily. And there wasn't um, a lot of critical reflection until it became clear how many people had become use dependent and how many people were developing problematic use. And, and there were people dying from the use of uh, uh, OxyContin. It's, uh, it's not as if it's not, it's without risk, but the risk from OxyContin is so much lower than if you buy street drugs. Um, Danny switched to heroin in 2012 and um, he, he went through a very difficult time when he was trying to quit and we went through a cycle of relapse and like detox and relapse and detox and relapse and we didn't understand that for opioid use um, just going um, going abstinent is uh, is not the most effective way to find recovery um, that really uh, medication assistant treatment or opioid agonist treatment is what works for most people and, and shows the best results. And it took a while for Danny then to go on methadone. And the methadone really helped him stabilize and he moved back to Alberta. He was living on the coast at the time when he was using. He moved back to Alberta. He got his own place. He was a talented chef. He worked in some of the best restaurants. He, he had his own apartment again. Things were going seemingly well, but for us as a family, we didn't understand so many things. I had no clue about harm reduction and we didn't know how to support him. When he first started using what we were told about is, you know, he has to hit rock bottom and we got to practice tough love. And we never practiced tough love because we just loved him. We would have never, yeah, abandoned him or told him we won't speak to you or you can't come here if you're using and such. Um, we never did that, but um, we also didn't know that with methadone, people need to be on it long and steady and stable. And um, um, a good friend of mine, Garth Mullins in British Columbia, if your listeners like podcasts, they should check out Crackdown podcast. It's just amazing. It's really told from the perspective of drug users. And yeah. Garth has been on methadone probably 20 plus years. He's a, he's a PhD student. He's a journalist and one of the smartest people you'll ever meet. Um, but he needs his medication, needs it every day. And we have to stop stigmatizing people's medication. And we were pushing Danny to get off his meds. We wanted the old Danny back, you know, um, what dose are you on? You're tapering yet? And so he went off and he did okay being abstinent, but he kept on having relapses. And, and interestingly, um, his relapses were often connected to drinking. Like when he drank too much, he his inhibition was lowered and then he would fall back and, and use something else and then kind of get back into it and such. And during one of those times when he was using again, um, we um, yeah we were we were unaware that he was using again actually the day before I'd picked him up from the airport he'd gone on a trip with his dad 
um, and he'd flown through Vancouver on the BC coast where he'd lived. And he had a long layover there and I asked him what he'd done and he was kind of vague, but he told me he wanted to see his counselor and his doctor again. And I knew if I said, Danny, are you using again? Um, he would have gotten mad, mad at himself if he was really mad at me, if indeed he wasn't. So I thought, well, we'll leave it at that. It's, you know, he's an adult. He can talk to his doctor and to his psychologist. And I made those appointments. I made those appointments the next morning for him. We had an agreement that I could make his appointments. And he, he didn't live long enough to for me to tell him that I made those appointments. He died that day. Um, he had bought one more bill, pill because we didn't find anything else, presumably one more pill before he would go back to see his doctor and his counselor. And uh, what was sold as street oxy at the time, Danny probably had assumed was pressed heroin, um, which he had used before, but fentanyl had emerged and people, fentanyl hadn't made the news um, I learned about fentanyl after Danny died. Uh, the medical examiner told my husband that they've had an increase of cases um, of um, overdoses, drug poisonings with fentanyl. And um, I said, what is fentanyl? My husband explained, well, it's a pain medication they use in hospital or for terminal cancer care. It's a powerful pain medication. But the problem is when you obtain it on the street, you just don't know the strength. How can you dose something you don't know the strength? We have people dying now who've been experienced users for many, many years and really know what they're doing. And you, you can't dose it because even if you take half a pill, you might first take the half with little fentanyl in it and then you take the half that's almost all fentanyl. So, yeah, so... I started in drug policy after Danny died that, that day when I didn't get a hold of him to contact his doctor. He had he had worked a morning shift at the restaurant at seven in the morning and I thought, oh, he probably just went home and went straight back to sleep because he had picked him up at the airport at 12.30 at night. And then I couldn't get a hold of him and the next day and I was kind of sending what I called bait messages. Um, hey, Danny, uh, you traveled, you know, are you okay with your rent? Do you need any help? Um, and didn't hear anything. And then by the time when his shift had ended, I was thinking of for calling work, but I, I'm, I mean, you, you, he was 25 at the time. You don't phone your son's workplace and say, sure. did my son show up to work? I'm worried he took drugs. You don't say that. So um, my husband and I, we went over to his place and I knew the key code to the building and it was kind of the building. There were a lot of restaurant people, theater people, arty people, and, and they didn't generally lock their doors when they were home. No. So I got into the building, went up to the fourth floor to his apartment and, um, I went inside and there, the radio was on, he liked listening to our public broadcaster and it's kind of a bit of an old school guy and newspaper was on the table, looked at a newspaper from the day before there was a beer open. It looked like Danny coming back after work and I didn't see him. And then, um, I saw light coming 
under the bathroom and there wasn't a sound. And when you have a child using, and Jani was an injection drug user, when you have a child using street drugs and they're injecting, you always say something called anticipatory grief, where you always wonder if that call is going to come, if if that's the day. I remember one time a police officer showed up at our door and I must have been ready to collapse. And he said, no, 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 your son is okay. Well, sort of okay. They had picked him up on the street and he, they had found him using. And instead of actually taking him to the station and, and, and charging him, um, they brought him home and he was like livid. And I, I still to this day, um, I'm amazed at the response to the of the officer who just said, Danny, you got to be calm. I'm handing you over to your dad. So so I remember how I felt my first reaction in that night. So, but um, that day there was no sound. And I thought, wow, that day that I had feared and worried, it's here. It's really common. You sort of, your responses, I, I can still remember the responses. You, um, you say, really? Can this be it? And I opened the door and I don't want to describe what I found because I sure. don't want to cause anybody vicarious trauma. But Danny was was dead at the time when we found him. And, and it was clear that he had been using, um, there was a, a needle and, and syringe there and, and, and stuff um, yeah. and other, some other supplies. So I, my husband had waited downstairs because we had, brought some stuff home and did his laundry, had a basket full of laundry. He liked mid-century furniture. I'd found another old chair for his kitchen table that was in the car and I couldn't wait for the elevator. I ran down those flights of stairs and I told my husband, I said, Danny's dead. And he ran upstairs with me and he called 911. And to this day, fire engines, really in, in in Canada we have the fire engine and the ambulance and the police they all kind of come at once or the usually the fire engine is first and and to this day in, in this day we have so many drug poisonings right now in the city and so many fire engines and ambulances always takes me back and after Danny died I wanted to know why why had this happened Danny was a good person he wanted to see his doctor and his counselor. I knew he wanted to live. He had plans. Um, he had hopes and he had dreams and we had them for him. So I really wanted to find out what went wrong. And um, people gave me these grief groups, uh, these self-help group, uh, there's self-help books. So I looked at these books, not groups, books, and they didn't help. <laughs> they all just made me cry. And then because I was working at a university, I did a literature search, um, um, uh, deaths from substance use. And I came across an author named Feigelman who compared the death from substance use to the death of um, uh, suicide and wrote about how the stigma of that kind of death and uh, the trauma associated with it um, results in complex grief and a lot of mental health and physical health problems that people develop. And I looked at it and it helped me. It helped me knowing that this wasn't ordinary grieving, that I was in for a tough road ahead. And then as I, I set up a Google 
uh, alert for fentanyl. I've since disabled that. It's um, just too overwhelming. But I learned there were people dying like on one of the indigenous um, lands, one of the reserves in Southern Alberta. They had 10 deaths in two weeks and nobody was heeding it any attention. And actually now the statistics tell us that indigenous people in Canada are seven times more likely to die. We just had our national day of truth and reconciliation. For me, there is no truth and there is no reconciliation as long as we allow that to happen. So I looked at those 10 and I said, who are there? What are their names? What are their pictures? And I said to my husband, I said, people will not pay attention until families share stories. So there's a big newspaper, the Globe and Mail in Canada. It's one of our national newspapers. And they had a section called Lives Lived where you could submit obituaries of ordinary people. And there were like philanthropists who'd given millions to cancer research and, and that kind of thing, or a, a mother who had high Kilimanjaro uh, while she was ill and, and, you know, really extraordinary people. And I thought Danny is extraordinary. And my husband said, don't, don't hold your breath. Um, I wouldn't expect much. I sent his story in and I heard back from the editor immediately. And they said, our readers would love to hear your son's story. I took a 7,000 word obituary that my husband wrote, an obituary in which we were honest about the cause of death because we wanted to reduce the stigma and the shame. And it was amazing at the time how people came out of the woodwork. And so how many people we, were, we knew were equally affected but had never spoken of it. So I took that 7,000 word obituary and had to reduce it to 500 words. And the day it was published was about, um, he died in April and July, it was published 2014. I looked at the article and the first, first time I felt a little lighter and I felt like I, I knew what I had to do. I had to make his death matter. And so I reached out to more media and through one of those media stories, I connected with Lorna Thomas and Leslie McBain. They're the co-founders of the organization, uh, Mom Stop the Harm. Um, so in 2006, we connected in 2015, in 2016, we formed Mom Stop the Harm. And now we have uh, close to 4,000 members and families across the country that are part of our movement. and. Most families come to us for support. We do grief support, but we also support families who um, who are, still have a loved one using or in recovery. Um, our grief support groups are called Healing Heart and people can check that out on our website. And Holding Hope is our uh, support groups for families with, with loved ones who are using or in recovery. And then Mom Stop the Harm does tons of advocacy. Our Right now, we started early days and um, I, in advocacy, we don't go it alone. We work with our allies, like first and foremost, drug user groups, like the Canadian Association of People Use Drugs, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and, and there are many others. Um, we work closely with them. We work with researchers. We work with health professionals. And, and together, we were able to get naloxone off schedule, so the antidote that reverses an opioid overdose. Um, so that is now um, available 
over the counter, free of charge. You don't even need to get your name. You just go to the pharmacy, say, hey, I need another naloxone kit, and they'll give you one. So anyone, anyone can get a naloxone kit. Any, can anyone they? can get one. Because, you know, you put have to put the naloxone kits in the hand of the people who are not using or or people who are using when they're together that as a group, they have a kit available. It saved thousands and thousands of lives. Like I have a kit with me all the time. But uh, the, so that was one of our early victories, naloxone. And um, we fought what's called a good Samaritan law where you can't be criminally charged um, if, if there's a 911 call because of a drug poisoning. Um, we have fought for consumption sites. That's how I got involved locally. A um, friend of mine who was a it was uh, is now is a retired physician. I was still working as a public health physician at the time. She said, "You should, um, you should get consumption sites open, uh, consumption rooms open in Edmonton." I said, "I have no idea how." And she said, "I trust you. You'll figure it out." And through the work that I was doing, sharing Danny's story, I connected with local people and helped open the local cons consumption rooms. We had. We had three and one in a hospital in our city. And um, when the one in particular, when that opened, it was a mere five minute walk from where Danny died. Um, and it could have made a difference, could have made a huge difference for him. But I did not know. I did not know about harm reduction. I did not know about naloxone and, and consumption rooms I had heard of, but never really given a lot of thought. I was going to ask Petra, like, what was your... What was your belief around drug use even prior to, to knowing of Danny's? Because it, it'd be quite interesting to hear about like the actual development of your own knowledge that ultimately led, you know, in terms of you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when I was doing my research and and, and I was um, ultimately somebody that I knew recommended to get in touch with you and, and, and they actually described you as a harm reduction powerhouse. Is, is kind of like the terminology they use yeah. which you know in terms of the mm. the effect that you've had on 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 policy nationwide in Canada is 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 probably you know very um very true really but but yeah prior to knowing of Danny's even Danny's substance use yeah what what was your belief and what um you know what did you think about drugs at that time well I thought it's something to be avoided, uh, but also, uh, you know, I grew up, um, like I was born born in 58, grew up in the 60s, you know, when it came to cannabis use and such, I, I never looked at that too strictly. Um, um, now, if I look at it again, as a parent, I would set, probably set um, more strict um, expectations. Uh, not not be like prohibitionist crackdown, you know, sort of like safe alcohol use, you know, explaining the effect on the brain, how it's important to avoid it while you're younger, but then take a harm reduction approach as to how you can mitigate harms. That's that's what I would do now. But but at the time, I took a more sort of a probably a too casual um, Okay. of an approach i would think um but when it came to what you deem hard drugs like heroin and such you think that's not that's other people you know mm -hmm. everybody everybody always thinks it's other people until it happens to you and when it happened to us i had to do a deep examination and thinking you know what about the person who sold it to him 
how do I feel about that person? And early on, even before I dove into drug policy, I realized that the problem can't be with the dealer. It's um, the problem is somewhere else. And, and I went to examine where it is. Um, there is a crackdown episode, episode four, it's called Blame where Garth Mullins, I, I talked to him at that time, he examines, you know, who's to blame when somebody dies. Now I firmly believe drug policies are to blame. Governments are to blame. It's the only area of healthcare where we put um, ideology and, and uh, beliefs above the evidence. The, the evidence tells us that substance use happens and we have to keep people safe because only if we keep people safe, do they have an opportunity to seek treatment if treatment is what they need. And not everybody needs treatment who uses substances. Some just use them very- I was gonna say then in terms of like moving forward, like what do you see as being the answer then in terms of trying to reduce obviously the the drug related deaths in, in in Canada because I think over in the UK we we look at kind of drug policy in in different countries around the world and, and see them as ahead of us for example so you know Canada being one obviously in terms of the legalized regulated market of cannabis obviously came in a few years ago you know and obviously you've got numerous drug consumption rooms and and it's interesting, you know, that you you mentioned that, you know, there are some statements that are purely based on on belief. You know, Scotland as 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 just announced that they're going to go ahead in terms of the UK's first first drug consumption room, and we've had our prime minister saying, you know, drug consumption rooms don't work. We've had a, a minister for policing within the UK government saying that they encourage drug use, and you know, obviously those statements, as you said, you know, put it perfectly, really. That they're they're they're, they're just based on opinion. They're based on on um, belief, you know, and the and the evidence completely contradicts what they say. But but in terms of with the drug crisis. In, in Canada, or as you kind of put it in terms of the, the drug poisoning crisis, with it being going on for so many years now, what, what do you see as what needs to actually happen to, to try and get a hold of this? Long term and the way things going, I don't know if I will live long enough to see it. Um, I'm in my 60s. Long term, we need to legally regulate all substances and let adults make adult decisions. That is what Mom Stop the Harm fights for. That's what we stand for. Um, and when I don't say legalize, you know, legalize sort of sounds like a free fall that everyone can get everything everywhere. No, legally regulate because some substances are more harmful than others. Like for example, alcohol, um, the Canadian Center of Substance Use and Addiction, and I'm on their um, ad, um, family and friends advisory group. Um, they've just released a study that um, the only safe amount of alcohol to consume is zero drinks. Um, and they recommend for, women one drink away a week for men one or two and this is because of cancer risks and risk of heart disease and and all the other harms that come from alcohol yet alcohol is legal it's one of the most besides tobacco alcohol and tobacco are probably the substances that cause most harm and alcohol is the substances that is most readily available um, anywhere in the western world 
Um, on the other hand, um, you have some psychedelics, um, you have um, opioids, um, you have stimulants that people use for different reasons. So there is uh, Transform UK, for example, has released a, a white paper on the uh, regulation on stimulants of stimulants. They have different models in there. It's excellent. It's a template that could be applied. And if we mean regulation, we mean keeping young people safe, um, not making it widely available where it shouldn't be, but deciding where substances should be provided to, um, to legally using adults. And that is where we need to go in the long run. Do you think that will um, ever be achieved? I think it will. I think it will. I mean, alcohol prohibition, you know, we, yeah. 50 years ago, we had alcohol prohibition uh, in North America. It went away. Uh, yeah. It will be achieved. I mean, cannabis, who would have thought that cannabis would be legal? Um, now it's in Canada. A friend of mine was just in Portugal. Um, uh, Dr. Rebecca Hainsaw, she's, um, um, she looks at uh, cannabis use in young people and she, she was consulted there. Um, and uh, Germany is looking at uh, regulation of cannabis. If Germany goes and France, the UK has to take a close look, of course, and, 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 you know, because there is, although you're not in the uh, in the um, European Union anymore, there are close ties. Um, but earlier you said that, you know, you look at us being an ahead, we are ahead in some of the good things, but we are also ahead in something that is very lethal, which is synthetic opioids. In Europe, you have had access to actual heroin from um, Afghanistan and that, that region. And with the crackdown there, you might see more synthetic opioids coming in. And when you have synthetic opioids, you look at the numbers in BC, they just climb steeply. That is a very, very dangerous trend. So you need to be ahead of that trend. You need to have consumption rooms and harm reduction and harm reduction education. And short of legal regulation, what we are pushing for here, um, decriminalization is one thing, um, to reduce the stigma, to take the police out of the lives of people who use drugs. Um, but most important is what we call safe supply. It's a provision of regulated alternatives to toxic street drugs. Um, we have safe supply in some provinces as a prescribed safe supply where somebody who hasn't, where methadone hasn't worked, where suboxone hasn't worked, where other medications haven't worked, for, where absence hasn't worked and treatment hasn't worked, where people then have access to opioids on prescription, usually hydromorphone like Percocet that kind of medication. Some even prescribe fentanyl patches to people. There are some pilot projects. And that has been shown to not only save lives, but also stabilize people and take criminal activity out of people's lives. Like imagine if you have to find the money every day um, to buy your drugs, you have to find it somewhere. And, and some people engage in activities that harm themselves, or harm others. And with safe supply, you keep communities safer, you keep people safer, and you connect people to the health system. And a lot of people who are in safe supply for the longer run, I know a young woman here in Alberta who had to go to court to keep it, 
she reduced her dose. She's steadily been reducing her dose because her life is stable. She doesn't have to be afraid of anybody taking it away. She gets it at the pharmacist. She knows what's in it. Um, and we see very, very positive health benefits, yet safe supply is under attack, again, with misinformation from uh, primarily from the um, head of the Conservative Party here, who has just gone out and accuses um, the other parties of uh, yeah, taxpayer-funded dangerous drugs. And, and they blame the death on safe supply being uh, diverted. Is safe supply being diverted? Some of it is. Realistically, some of it is. Because if you are used to giving fentanyl, getting fentanyl and I give you hydromorphone it's like you know you always uh, drink scotch whiskey and then I give you a light beer to replace it oh. you know that light beer is not going to cover and maybe you trade 10 of those light beers for you know bottle scotch um, so that that is kind of happening because we don't give people really what they need sometimes people do it to help themselves but many people take the medication they get and maybe top it off with something that they need. Um, and even if they divert it, diverted safe supply is not as, uh, if, if Danny was still with us and would be using again, I'd rather have him use diverted safe supply than fentanyl from the street. It's just, you can dose it. The risk is so much lower. So saying that safe supply contributes to the dust is just a boogeyman. Um, the numbers don't show it. In Alberta, 95, 94%, like hovering between 90 and 95% of the of the death involve toxic street drugs, usually synthetic opioids and their analogs like fentanyl and carfentanyl. That's where the deaths are coming from. So it's, um, pretend, it's, it's people potentially unintentionally consuming substances. Um, unintentionally consuming in a quantity that that they don't anticipate, like Danny yeah. did. Uh, um, the other really exciting development in, in Vancouver, there is a drug user liberation front. Um, um, one of the co-founders, um, Jeremy Calcom, he's, he's one of our directors of Mom Stop the Harm. Um, and what they do is they buy... Um, they buy heroin and um, uh, methamphetamine on the dark web. Um, they test it, uh, they, they weigh it, they package it. They have packages that look like cigarette packages with, with warning labels on it and, and uh, you know, how many grams and such. And then they distribute it through a compassion club, which means that people pay, like you pay the cost. Um, you, you pay your share of the cost. So it's cheaper than on the street because nobody has to make a profit on it. But most importantly, um, it's, um, yeah, it's safer, much safer. Since they started their pilot, I think it's about two years now, they just released their own study. Nobody has died in their compassion club oh. since they started it. And people also have, their lives have improved and stabilized and people have reduced um, involvement in criminal activity. It's, it's really exciting. Now, is it a problem that they have to buy it on the dark web? Yes, it is. It's not legal, technically, but they have no, no alternative. 
um, there is a company in Canada that would make medical grade heroin, but they're not able to make it or sell it. There's a, there's a company that makes methamphetamine for research use. They can't obtain it there. So um, we force people who use drugs to engage in criminal activity, not because they're inherently criminal or anything like that. We force people into criminal activity because we don't give them legal alternatives. We don't give them legal alternatives to obtain what they need. And I yeah. mean, for Danny, that pill is what, what he needed at the time. Um, a lot of people who use drugs are indigenous. We've had a history of residential schools that is just now coming out and the abuse uh, that people faced there was atrocious. Um, people were malnourished. There was physical abuse and uh, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. Um, then we had a 60s group where indigenous kids were taken away and adopted by white families. So, so there's a lot of trauma. And who am I as a, as a white middle-class settler to tell an indigenous person how they cope with the trauma we inflicted of them, on them? From like the, the consumption room. So you said you had a, a bit of a involvement in the establishment mm. of, of them mm -hmm. in, in your area. What impact have you seen that they've had? They have a tremendous impact, especially if we have a huge housing crisis, um, as you probably have as well in many cities. Um, and uh, uh, especially people who are unhoused, for, for them, the consumption rooms are so important because um, not only do they keep people safe but also you know when when you have to use behind a dumpster in a back alley you you kind of rush you don't have clean supply you might be drawing water from a puddle instead of using sterile water and you don't do just a little tester to see how it feels you do the whole thing because a police officer might come around and confiscate what you just have but if you can go into a consumption room a nurse can talk to you ask you what you're using give you a suggestion on the size of syringe and how keep you keep your veins healthier. You reduce bloodborne diseases. Um, I mean, we have to remember harm reduction was really a result of the HIV AIDS crisis and how we learned that um, using fresh needles, syringes, um, um, using condoms and those kind of things spread stopped the spread of HIV. And that is still now there are many like uh, there's hepatitis, people develop endocarditis and all those things are much reduced. Um, there was a researcher in Calgary here to the south of me. She found out that every for every dollar spent on a consumption room, three are saved in healthcare dollars that yeah. are not wow. needed. That's huge. And then uh, trust is a huge issue. I think a lot of people who use drugs have a broken trust with the healthcare system. They have been stigmatized, they have been treated poorly, um, they've been not helped. And consumption rooms are really a place where you develop that trust again. And then you can begin that conversation. Is there an alternative? Can you help me? Um, can you help me find housing? Uh, if people want to get well, I think housing is so essential. We have to give them housing first because, you know, a treatment regime on methadone, for example, is so um, rigid and intense. It's really hard to maintain if you 
don't have a roof over your head and you don't know what time it is or what even what day it is. And so, so we've seen really positive results, but we've also already seen in our province two consumption rooms closed, including the only one that um, does inhalation. And another trend we have found with so many people dying from injecting, um, people have moved to smoking as a um, as a safer alternative, it's a harm reduction approach, but uh, smoking and inhaling like different ways. Um, uh, but we don't have con consumption rooms uh, that allow inhaling. You know, it's it's pretty complicated. You need like air ventilation systems and that kind of thing. You have to keep the staff safe and the other users and such. So that's another trend that we are seeing inhalation and needing to expand consumption rooms and that and in the city where a consumption room was closed it had 24 spaces with inhalation and injection combined was open around the clock served there served a large indigenous population um that city now has a van with three seats parked in a place mm -hmm. where people don't like to go and there death per 100,000 is now three to four times the provincial average. So what was the reason um, it was closed then? Um, political pressure. Um, right. It's it's kind of, uh, yeah, the conservative premier was elected, promised to close it. And then they did a financial audit. And you know how not-for-profits are sometimes, um, you know, yeah, serving people, um, takes precedence and, and bookkeeping is not as strict as it should be. There was a financial audit, a forensic audit. And based on that forensic audit, they were closed. But later, the police investigated and found that there was no money missing. It was just in the wrong accounts. Okay. Like all the all the money was accounted for. But by the time we heard that all the money was accounted for, the consumption side was closed and and many people had died. And it has not been reopened because the government said, well, we replaced it. Yes, you replaced it. Um, 24 space site that was culturally appropriate for indigenous people offered space for smudging and other culture um, with some with a van that has three seats. And during COVID's only COVID only two seats could be used because right. of distancing. To wrap up then, Petra, in terms of, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, you, you talked about Danny and, you know, his mm -hmm. life and obviously the, the the absolute tragic circumstances, you know, and, and you, you kind of recalled that day when he, he, he lost his life. Like, how, how do you, you know, I know you've kind of already touched upon it, but to kind of like sum up, so how, how do you intend really in terms of from today moving forwards, intend to continue his memory and, and ultimately his legacy to a, to a degree. I will continue to work with our allies. Um, I'm I'm no longer on the board of Mom Stop the Harm, which um, frees me up 
to do more advocacy work, other advocacy work. And so I'm working with uh, national committees, um, with groups. I'm, I'm off to Ottawa on Wednesday uh, for a meeting with uh, uh, a number of not-for-profit organizations where we're going to look at synergies, how we can help each other, how we can support each other and, and move forward um, to address the crisis. So I will continue to do that work. And I do it for Danny. Um, I also do it for our our oldest child, Millie. Um, they um, are living in recovery, but but had a history of substance use as well. I don't I don't talk about Millie because thankfully they're here, and they have their own story to tell, and they have YouTube videos and such. So, but what I plan to do is moving forward. Um, keeping this keeping up the pressure not letting up the pressure we are not letting politicians off the hook we are not letting politicians tell lies every time a politician tells a lie we show the evidence and we support the research i've participated in research projects and work still on a research project right now on on how rural families are affected by the crisis um so that's what we need to do going forward. For every lie, we will have the facts and the answers and the research and the evidence that shows what we need to do to keep people alive and, and also to respect people use drugs for who they are. I've changed my stance on where I thought drug use was inherently bad and always to be avoided. And I don't think that anymore. I think for some people, um, Using is what keeps them alive, it's what keeps them healthy, keeps them well, and I have to respect that. And and who am I to judge? I like I like more than one glass of wine a week, um, if I'm honest. So I use substances, we all do. And we have to stop um, shaming, blaming, stigmatizing people because the substances they use are by our policy deemed criminal, whereas others, are deemed legal. It needs to change and I won't stop until it changes or until I die and others will have to carry on. But I think I still have a few left, years left to do this work. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Petra, thank you so much for um, yeah talking us through that and giving us a, an overview of what's going on in Canada and obviously your work, but also, and most importantly, in terms of yeah, sharing the life of, of of Danny really, you know, it's um, it's been an absolute yeah. privilege to to hear from you. So so yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for that. Danny was a little tyke when we lived in London. He learned to walk there, and he watched he watched the trains um, in Beckenham where we lived. So so I'm really really pleased to share Danny's stories with the with the people who listen in in Wales and and beyond. Yeah, thank you, thank, thank you Petra. Thanks. Bye. A huge thank you to Petra and it was an absolute privilege to chat and ultimately to, to listen to her. If you've been affected in any way by today's episode, please, we encourage you to reach out. Barrod has a live web chat service that is open seven days a week at barrod.cymru where you can chat confidentially to one of our trained support workers. Until next time, take care of yourself. Bye-bye.